0: I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when a cassette tape ran 90 minutes but held infinite promise, when drugs went suburban and parents didn't helicopter, when stars walked among us but you couldn't even prove it. I Am The Fly, David Klein, guiding you through the pre-digital past on a pair of warped wings. In this episode, it's all fun and games until I lose an eye. Dad introduced me to the word dawdle. To me it sounded a bit like dovidl, the Yiddish diminutive of my given name that grandma sometimes used. Dad introduced me to the word in the context of my own tendency to do it. So true to form, I dawdled over lunch that day. My cousin Linda was in from California visiting, and it was hard to tear myself away and return to school. I hustled on that last stretch of Oak Street to make up the difference, and catching sight of a few kids up ahead on the footpath, I knew I was good. Tommy and two kids from our football games, Carney and Sam, are in a sort of huddle. Bubblegum is my first thought. Or maybe Tommy has more nudie playing cards. Something forbidden is being shared. This much I know. I'm about 15 feet away when my friends break from their huddle and turn to face me, and maybe something is unfamiliar in their overall comportment. A pain sears through my right eye, fierce as a sudden blow. I buckle into a defensive crouch, and while I'm down there Tommy says something I won't ever be sure of. Something like, Oop, I think he eyed it. As if to say, he took one in the eye, but with a spontaneous vernacular spin, perhaps to downplay things because he had to know how far he had pulled that thing back and how hard it would still be flying when it reached me. Projectiles are all the rage at Smith school. Kids remove the tubular ink container from the inside of big pens and turn the outer clear plastic casing into a spitball launcher. A spitball is an annoyance, a bit of wadded-up paper in a saliva bath, the mosquito of the projectile game. There are hornets and wasps, too you can fashion a miniature slingshot out of a rubber band, while certain envelope-pushing fifth graders have discovered that a slightly unbent paperclip hooked onto a tautly pulled rubber band loop results in greater distance and greater pain. I've just met with the sharp end of that proposition. The guys lead me inside and into the school's office and then... Heck, it's past one and they have to scurry to class. Mrs. Schneider, the school secretary, is not terribly concerned. I'm told to wait for the school nurse to return from her lunch break in her office. The tears my eye is making have a pink tinge. Worse, when I cover my good eye, it's all black. Not blurry, black. Mr. Muller arrives after a little while, thankfully, not brandishing a handsaw. Even though I'm legitimately injured, I am still unnerved by him, what with the chair incident and the memory of the nudie card debacle still fresh. A few weeks ago, Mr. Muller had called a bunch of us out of various classrooms and into the hallway and gone all Elliot Ness on us. Everyone from the lowly card purchasers like me, to card dealers like Tommy, to the supply guy, Jimmy Harris, who lived in an impressive house near the Cotswold with his mother, the Tony Award-nominated actress Inga Swenson, later of the 80s sitcom Benson. Jimmy had done a brisk business, selling playing cards from a deck issued by Playboy Enterprises for a quarter apiece, and had recently shown up on Tommy's front porch, a Playboy centerfold in his hand, ready to do business for a mere buck. How could Tommy resist? Mrs. Roberts held on to the centerfold and had it delivered with a strongly worded note via Tommy's twin sister, Christina, to the principal with alacrity. Oh, the salaciousness of it. Mr. Muller warned us that if anything like this ever happened again, we were all dead meat. Okay, Mr. Klein, so what happened? You guys horsing around? Like I always say, it's all fun and games until... He trails off and forces a chuckle. All right, let's close the good eye and tell me what this says. He instructs, pointing to a box of, I guess, educational materials. It's all black. I can't even see it. I can see just fine out of the other, I say, and still wanting to be cool with him, I start to read the educational jargon on the box, showing how good a reader I'm getting to be. You know what? You probably just stung it. I did? I mean, just stung it? Yeah, you just stung your eye. You'll be okay. You just go ahead and sit tight. It hurts, but I wait. How come I've never heard of stinging your eye before? When you sting your eye, does everything go black for a little while and then your vision returns to normal? I'm not the savviest 11-year-old, but Jesus, even to me this sounds highly unlikely. Still, I maintain a shred of trust in his status as an adult. Who knows? Maybe I had just stung the damn thing. Mrs. James breezes in, a robust woman in her mid-fifties with short salt-and-pepper hair and bifocals attached to a thin chain. So, David, Mr. Miller tells me something happened to your eye. Something hit you in the eye, is that right? You were playing outside? Not playing. Well, I wasn't. I was just walking up and my friends were playing, I guess. I see. And do you know what it was that hit you? A paperclip, I think. A paperclip. Well, I always tell you kids, it's all fun and games until... Well, let's have a look-see, she says, tilting my chin up with a tap of her fingers. Mrs. James takes out a little pen light and shines it in my eye, and it spooks me. David, if I can't look at it, how can I help you? For the first time, I'm about to cry. Okay, David, I'll tell you what. Let's give Mother a call. Dr. Selig's waiting room is three-quarters full, and there's nothing to do but wait. I'm in a loose fetal position on my left side, one hand cupped over my eye, my head on Mom's lap as she strokes my hair. By unspoken edict, only the most innocuous pop music plays in Dr. Selig's office. 93 WPAT. 27 minutes now past nine. But sometimes the radio is singing your life, and just as the pain in my sad, aqueous eye begins to grow intolerable, The glistening arpeggios that open the stones as tears go by begin to emanate from the embedded ceiling speakers. It is the evening of the day. A seemingly contradictory state, but I know it intimately on this particular day. I sit and watch the children play What an idyllic image. Only sometimes children play with projectiles. That heavenly string quartet middle bit? I must remember to play that for Dad. It ends with a bit of humming, the same way Yesterday does. Never noticed that before. Killing Me Softly by Roberta Flack comes on next. I can't remember hating a song the way I hate Killing Me Softly. It's maudlin' as hell, yes, but so are half the songs on the pop charts. There's just something so grown up and intimate about the journey it takes you on, and it's from a woman's point of view and therefore incomprehensible. I refuse to make that journey voluntarily, yet it's been number one since February and as inescapable as bad weather. On cue, my eye begins to throb and Mom tells the woman at the desk that I need to be seen right away. Soon, I'm guided into a dim room and steered toward one of those chin-caressing eyeball examination apparatuses. I detect a hint of movement as Dr. Selig bends toward me in that weirdly intimate tete-a-tete twixt patient and ophthalmologist. Then I hear him gasp. Joan, he sputters, a little phlegm catch in his throat. Joan, he, he needs to be admitted right away. The eye is a tiny thing, and it can't tolerate a lot of trauma. The flying object has pierced my cornea and caused bleeding within the anterior chamber, which is behind the outer corneal layer and in front of the lens. Any further bleeding could cause irreparable damage, so my eye has to keep still. Both eyes do, because when you look with one eye, you look with the other. I am propped up in a hospital bed with patches taped over both eyes, sedated. Mom has the TV tuned to Channel 11, whose five-star afternoon lineup begins at 4.30 with The Munsters, followed by a half-hour of Batman reruns. In Fine Finny Fiends, the Cape Crusaders are lashed to a wall in a room full of candy-colored balloons, and they'll die when the last one pops. Can this be happening to the dynamic duo? How can they live? Will they be vanquished by a vacuum? Revive, Robin! Breathe, Batman! We'll hold our breath for you both! Until tomorrow night, same time, same channel! A tiny crack where one of the patches isn't fully secured admits a trace of light, but I keep my eyes shut like I've been told to do. Besides, I know they'll escape. Thanks to the bat knife and mini bat oxygen tanks hidden in Batman's utility belt. I awaken in the double darkness with dueling banjos running through my head. Mom and Dad saw Deliverance last summer, and in true dad fashion, he couldn't keep from telling me about the horrifying rape scene, although he just barely managed to avoid using the word rape by asking if I knew what the word sodomy meant. A hard copy of James Dickey's bestseller sits on a bookshelf in the living room with that obdurate word in all caps. Also Gibraltar like is The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shirer with its unignorable black swastika in a white circle. I've scoured Deliverance in search of the so called good parts, but I crave to see all of its unspeakableness unfold on screen, to see the scene where badass Burt Reynolds avenges that poor S.O.B. Bobby with a bow and arrow. Thanks to Tommy Roberts, I know all about it. My guitar playing has progressed to the point where I can play the easy parts of dueling banjos before it gets all fast. Lying there, drugged and patched on the giant hospital bed, the fingers on my left hand begin to move along an imagined fretboard. materializes between my right thumb and forefinger, and the song from the movie starts to play. I'm doing the fast parts now, and instead of the strange-looking boy on the porch, it's Tommy Roberts on banjo. This casting is sharply against type, for banjo is a character actor's instrument, and Tommy is a leading man. But I'm all hopped up on Phenobarbital and not thinking straight. When we play football on the dusty field behind Smith School, Tommy's the quarterback. He just has to be. He's naturally athletic, has a good arm and knows how to scramble, but beyond that, he possesses some non-physical quality that makes it seem like he should be the leader. This is not the result of a particularly strong or dominating personality or an uncanny magnetism, but rather from an unwavering belief in his own instincts. Tommy just seems to know. He'll turn his upturned palm into the football field and show you exactly where to run, And every so often, you'll go out for that pass and do the exact pattern he put down, straight for ten strides, then a fake to the left and a quick pivot right, and wham, the ball is coming right at you, chest level, like a birthday present. For conceiving and delivering on plays like that, I accord him an almost mythic status. And I'm not the only one. Blindness has been a long-time fascination. At my grandparents' apartment in Flatbush is an image of Helen Keller in a giant book of photographs, her fingers splayed gently over the face of a cooperative man, her eyes looking rapturously heavenward. I spent time peering at the cover of Dad's copy of Ray Charles's greatest hits, straining to see something behind Ray's dark glasses. What stoked my early interest was a scholastic paperback about Louis Braille, with Braille text on the back cover. Young Lewis is depicted as a willful boy who causes his own injury by playing with the sharp leather-punching tool that his dad has sensibly left lying around where his kid can find it. Lewis is even responsible for spreading the infection from his injured eye to the other one by excessively rubbing at it. It's almost as if inventing a way for blind people to read was his way of atoning for screwing up. My blindness fetish peaked with Longstreet. An ABC series starring James Franciscus as an insurance investigator blinded by bad guys in an explosion that kills his wife. With a firm jaw and the assistance of his faithful white German shepherd, Pax, our blind detective takes down bad guys through dogged insurance industry tactics and the way of the intercepting fist, which he learns from Bruce Lee. In Cantonese, Jeet Kune Do. The way of the intercepting fist. Intercepting fist, huh? Or foot. Come on, touch me. Any way you can. (laughs) You see? To reach me, you must move to me. Your attack offers me an opportunity to intercept you. Longstreet's most astounding trick was his ability to listen in as a suspicious person places a call on a rotary phone and discern the number by the length of each of the dial's return rotations. I won't be blind like Longstreet. Tops, I'll lose an eye and be the kid who lost an eye, the ignominious someone who stopped all the fun and games. Call it a slight improvement over the kid who got his head stuck in a chair. The patch comes off my good eye after a week, when the danger of casual usage is no longer likely to affect the healing eye adversely. A bunch of letters from the kids in my fifth grade class arrive. Each one is exactly the same length, yet encapsulates the personality of the writer in a way that touches me. Sam's letter... Hi, David. Not doing much in school. I'm sleeping at Eric's house Friday. Maybe we can play Saturday. Your friend Sam is newsy and forward-looking. Margot, sweetly naive, tries to empathize. Dear David, I hope your eye doesn't hurt too much. It must be hard for you to have any fun when you can't see. I'm sure the doctor will help you, and you can come back to school soon. Cynthia's note is notable for indicating just how quickly Tommy has circulated the story that the object that caused my injury was a rubber band. Dear David, I was sorry to hear about you getting hit in the eye with a rubber band. I hope you get better and come back to school soon. Class is so quiet without you. I begin to feel like myself again, which means restless. At one point, something pisses me off and I throw my head back against the pillow in disgust and am immediately warned not to do it again, because I can still jar something loose and then I really will lose the eye. So I will myself to chill. Urging on my own blindness like poor Louis Braille is not going to be my fate. My eyes are extremely light-sensitive afterward, and I am given a pair of pretty cool sunglasses with metal frames. I can't bring myself to wear them to school, but I accompany Dad on an errand one evening, and the teenage kids of his medical colleague snicker at my rad shades. Soon I'll be fitted for a gas-permeable contact lens that has to be cleaned in a little machine every night and will never be comfortable. If getting hit in the eye with a paperclip pays any dividends, I sure am not seeing any. Back at home, the radio offers brief moments of comfort and escape, despite the omnipresence of the carpenters sing. The songs take on new meanings now, and Elton John's Daniel is easy to project myself into. That's a cartoon version of me. Wounded, but possessed of a level of insight beyond that of most mortal men. I can see clearly now by Johnny Nash as the soundtrack to my good days. Drift Away by Dobie Gray is for the darker ones. Day after day I'm more confused. Yet I look for the light the rain. Only two relatively tiny spaces on the human body so can be seriously hurt by a flying paperclip. The insane. only lesson to be learned is that there's no cure for bad luck. My soul, I wanna get lost in your rock and roll and drift away. Oh, give me the beat boys and free my soul, I wanna get lost in your rock and roll and drift away. Next up, I meet my first rock star and discover the joys of juvenile delinquency with Ten of Flies Rumbum Gang. Check out IamThefly.org for a mix of songs, excerpted here, and more. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend.